there, Morris Bishtinsky speaking. Welcome to episode 139 of the Love That Album podcast. So glad you could join me. We're part of the Pantheon podcast network that specializes only in podcasts related to music discussion. As I record this, it's October 2020. You don't need me to remind you what that's all about. But two shining lights at the moment. One is that it's been announced that my state of Victoria is hopefully on its last few days of this extra strong lockdown. We've been doing it really hard down here. Hopefully there's some optimistic signs about us being able to go, well, not back to normal as it was, but at least having some of the restrictions reduced. So that's very, very exciting. And the other wonderful thing that has actually happened this year that has given me so much optimism was an unexpected treat the new album from the ice cream hands no weapon but love they hadn't actually released a new album in 13 years of course the members of the band had all been kept busy doing a whole bunch of other things most particularly my guest for this show mr charles jenkins with his band charles jenkins and the Javagos. now i actually spoke to charles once before on this program uh, back in December of 2013, I'd labeled that as a bonus episode, but it came out, I think, in the same month as episode 55 of the show. So if you want to go back around about that time to have a listen to that original episode, if you haven't actually caught up with it yet. But the Ice Cream Hands, for those who are uninitiated, are that band that give pop music a really terrific name. Uh, if you know me or if you've been listening to this show for a while or you've been looking on the Facebook page for Love That Album, you know that my two favorite bands to ever come out of this country have been Weddings, Parties, Anything and Ice Cream Hands. So really quite a treat for me to be able to talk with Charles, not only about the new album, No Weapon But Love, but some songwriting things because that's what I like to talk about. And I get the feeling that Charles also likes to talk a lot about songwriting and the pleasure that it gives him. Now, one mistake that I make early on in the piece that you're about to hear, I open up saying that Charles is the first musician to return to this program to talk about his own work. And that's not actually giving credit. We've had Steve Berlin of Los Lobos a number of times on the program. So Charles, you're the second musician to come back and talk about his own work on this program, but huge fan of you both. Okay, Joe's going to give you the contact details, how you can email me, how you can join the Facebook group for Love That Album and post all your own thoughts about music. Would love to see what you have to say about your favorite albums at the moment or just some contentious music issue. We need a few more contentious music issues because people don't argue enough on the internet. That's what I say. After that, we'll go straight into the interview with Charles. And following that, I'll be back to talk about what will be on for next month's episode, November 2020, on episode 140 of Love That Album. But right now, on with the show. I got a dusty old pile of vinyl records sitting on my floor. We hope you're enjoying the show. You can find previous episodes at lovethatalbumpodcast.blogspot.com. Dot com, or you can get it along with any of the other great music discussion shows at rockandrollarchaeology.com, all part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. To keep up to date, subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. You can email Morris with feedback or album suggestions at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music-related discussion. episode 139 of Love That Album podcast. And I think this is the first time 
I've had a musician come back for a second go around on the program. I mean, I've had a lot of other co-presenters talking about favorite albums, but uh, the first time I've had a musician come back to talk about his own work. So I guess I didn't suck too much last time. I'm talking about the wonderful singer, songwriter, band leader, Mr. Charles Jenkins, aka Chuck Jenkins. Will it be Charles or Chuck this time around? You can call me. Al? Uh, let's go with Charles. Okay, we'll do that. Welcome back to the program. It is lovely to have another chance to speak with you, seeing that you have gone and released an unexpected treat for us music-loving fans in Melbourne here with the new album, No Weapon But Love. So congratulations on getting that Ice Cream Hands album out. First one in 13 years. I've had now a month or two to live with and to my ears, it certainly sounds songwriting-wise where the good China left off and yet you've released a lot of other music in that time with the Zhivagos and you've had a whole lot of other life experiences that would have changed you in the last... 13 years, you've become a songwriting mentor. You've gone and gotten yourself a master's degree in songwriting or in lyric writing, which I want to get to in its own right. And as you mentioned in a film that I want to talk a little bit about later on, that you had an aneurysm in the last few years. So all this, I imagine, would have affected how you've gone and written songs. But musically, the album does still seem to sound to me like a beautiful continuation from The Good China. And this isn't even taking into account yet how, what Doug and Smiley and Marcus would have been doing in the intervening years. So did you consciously approach doing this new group of songs in a different way to how you'd gone and recorded before or you'd written for the Ice Cream Hands before? Firstly, Morris, thanks for having me back on your show it's a real honor so i really appreciate your time your research already is to be admired um <laughs> let's see so no weapon but like i was surprised that it was 13 years i didn't think it was that long we'd got together and done a few as in ice cream has got together and done a few tours for sweeter than the radio a record from i don't know 99 or something so we did a 20th anniversary one and i think we also even did like a 15 year anniversary one or something i don't know so we were playing and we started talking Talking about this record a few years ago and it, I think in 2017 myself and the Chivagos put out a record called The Last Polaroid. Thought, wow, this is as close to an Ice Cream Hands record as I've got in solo band thing. And I suppose I should try and figure out what that means, as close to an Ice Cream Hands record. But they were, it's a predominantly upbeat record with lots of songs. Uh, sorry, lots of songs, lots of choruses in those songs, and lots of harmonies. And Doug was working on it. Doug from the Ice Cream Hands, you know, was singing on it. And so, yeah, it was kind of slowly moving towards No Weapon But Love. I was sending songs to Doug, like sending demos, I kind of abandoned being a very good home recording artist a while ago. I just got kind of frustrated with my lack of technical know-how and musical chops. So these days, my demos pretty much consist of me and an acoustic guitar and a vocal and a click track. And I just would, was sending these ideas to Doug and he would send them back in widescreen Technicolor with these drums and bass and guitars and harmonies. And, and I kind of realized, you know, this sounds so much like an Ice Cream Hands record. These songs sound so good because of what Doug is doing. And I said, Doug, should these be an Ice Cream Hands? record, you know, about a second after I pushed send on the text, he replied with yes. That's how it came to be. That was a few years ago, that conversation. And so slowly we've been getting this record together. It took about a year to record. We went and recorded the drums at a proper studio. And then we just were adding stuff at Doug's. Doug's got a tiny studio, you know, about the size of a small bedroom. And so he, he could only fit one person at a time in there, plus him. So we were assembling the record pretty much. That's the genesis Oh, no weapon but love. Given that these songs were written over a period of a number of years or the ideas behind this came over a period, lengthy period of time, do you think, though, that your other work, your time in the Zhivagos, you having gone and gotten yourself a master's degree and now that you're lecturing as well in, I believe, what you've called the black art 
of uh, lyric writing. Do you think that sort of maybe being a little bit more academic to it has changed anything about how you think about writing your own songs? Uh, it's a good question. I don't. I don't think it's changed how I think about it. It, it just kind of helps me have confidence in my ability to get to the end of the song because a lot of the work I do is one-on-one with songwriters who are, have either completed a song or are halfway through a song and we just discuss ways in which to make it better. So the masters just help me to identify certain things in a song that I can look at quickly and see are they in balance, are they in proportion and and so that's what I do with my own songs. Just make sure that, you know, everything is kind of heading in the same direction. It doesn't make it any easier, but as I said, it kind of gives me the confidence to persist with it. I find I don't abandon as many songs as I once did. Okay, so that's the big takeaway. You're not actually sort of thinking, there's a song I wrote 20 years ago. If I could have only have known then what I know now, I would have done it completely differently. Uh, no, not really. I'm kind of happy with a lot of the stuff I've done. There's certain songs I'll listen to and think, oh, gee, that was a bit weird. But I mean, I would probably think that without the masters. It's just the, in retrospect, glorious, you're able to kind of see or hear these things. Yeah, I'm kind of pleased with what's happened in the past. (laughs) It kind of also got, now that I think about it, it also got to the fact that I was getting a little bit tired of being the cheap cook and bottle washer, you know, Charles Jingers and Chivago's. And it's just been glorious, a wonderful ride to be part of the gang again. Mm. You know, there's four of us and Dave Moon on piano and make five and there's divisions of labour, you know. So, I mean, to give credit where credit's due, Doug has done the lion's share, like a huge amount of work. He did all the recording and produced the record. And so I think the record sounds so good because we finally just said, Doug, will you please do it? Like You're going to do it better than anyone else can do it, so just do it. So what's Doug's background in terms of writing and arranging? We've always known him, right, the bass player and your co-conspirator in the ice cream hands, but it seems to me like he's the one who's always written the vocal harmonies. That's a large part of what he contributes to the sound, even on your songs, as well as his own. What's his background? Did he train? He grew up in Adelaide. That's where we met. We met in Adelaide. We were playing different bands. And I would go see him play in this little acoustic duo on a Sunday afternoon. And I'm mainly doing covers. And he was just such a naturally gifted harmony singer and lead singer. Like he trained as an actor at oh, wow. his university. He did drama huh. and almost got into NIDA a couple of times. I think he told me this story. You know, one year he was told he was tall, too tall. <laughs> <laughs> And the next year, I don't know what happened. But, yeah, so he's always, since he joined the Ice Cream Hands, and and I saw him on the street in Melbourne a few, maybe six months after he'd moved here. I wasn't aware that he'd moved here. And we got chatting and asked him straight away. There was was an opportunity to, to play together. And so it's been ever since. And he's always been the person we just trust the most with regard to, uh, well, as you said, especially in vocal harmonies, he'll know Okay, you sing this note, you sing this note, you sing this note, I'll figure out my note when the time comes. And he's just always been such a wonderfully generous person musically and and in life. I also think he's kind of a bit like the heart of the band, you know, like I think that we have this upbeat pop sound, guitar sound, which I think is like is kind of the sweet spot where we all where our music collections kind of meet. And I think I did those solo records because I wanted to do songs that were a bit removed from that neck of the woods. But I am really enjoying the opportunity to write songs for the band and be part of the gang again. Plus, do these quiet little nylon string records as well. And even with. The Zhivagos, it sounds like you were fairly restless in terms of what you wanted to sound. An Ice Cream Hands album sounds like an Ice Cream Hands album, but I don't think there are any two Zhivagos records that sound like, inverted commas, a typical Zhivagos record. Love Your Crooked Neighbor with All Your Crooked Heart doesn't sound anything like The Last Polaroid, which you said was already inching its way back towards your love of big pop harmony sounds and sounds nothing like Blue Atlas. I was drowned by Montgomery Clift A knife by Robert Mitchum So to be strangled by Ronald Coleman Was nothing new I'm Shelley Winters I'm Shelley Winters tonight 
they all sound very different. Were you deliberately experimenting? I was deliberately heading in those particular directions because I realised it helped me write songs. I, the, and the first time I realised that was with the Blue Atlas when I made the decision to write songs that only had place names or people's names in them. That was how that record came to be. And it was going to be a me and the guitar only record. Then I balked at that and eventually it became this big, beautiful string album, orchestral kind of thing, small orchestra, string section. Thanks to Maddie Bale's wonderful string arrangements and some very generous people at the time that helped us make that record financially. And then after that, let's do a country record. Um, so that became Love Your Crooked Neighbor, The Crooked Heart. The I might get the sequence of events here wrong. Too much water in the boat. It was a bit more all over the place musically, but lyrically, it, the theme was water. So to you, is the ice cream hands and the Zhivagos separate in terms of the actual songs or the arrangement? Could you feasibly take a Zhivagos set list and say, right, we're going to hands this up? It was just time and place, really. I mean, I knew that the Ice Cream Hands were going to make another record because, as I said, we were together playing those sporadic shows and really enjoying each other's company. The rest of it, I never really thought about too much. I, I always just tried to make a record a year and I knew that the Ice Cream Hands one just might take a little bit longer, maybe. I don't know. I've never thought about the overlap between songs. I mean, I'm at this stage at the moment where I'm writing songs for what I hope will be the next Ice Cream Hands record, and I just send them off to the band and just say, if you like it, we'll do it kind of thing. I let them make those decisions about whether it's not an Ice Cream Hands song. You know okay. what I mean? So yep. I'm, not, I'm not exactly sure because I think if I put those parameters on myself, then it might stop me a little or kind of, you know, might start to question what I'm doing. But if I just think... Well, I'm just going to write songs, and if I write 20 of them, then they're bound to be 10 good ones. Mm. And hopefully out of them there's, you know, six good ones that the band wants to do, and then there's a few of Doug's and Smiley and Marcus, and bang, there's your, there's your next record. It's a good question. I think they're putting those filters on it. And that also might be the fact that part of their determining process is perhaps what they can foresee, forehear, what they can bring to the song. That might also be part of it. I'm not exactly sure. I haven't really questioned them because I don't think it's in my interest as a songwriter to worry about that stuff. I just need to, I just need to make sure... I'm happy with the song before I push send. I want to give a shout out to Chris Franklin, local filmmaker. He was a guest on my other podcast, See Here, a few years back to talk about his terrific short film about Chris Wilson and Shana Mara. And he seems to have made his niche in documenting the Melbourne music scene, particularly, I guess, the songwriters and Americana scene. Did he approach you about making a film about yourself and about your way of work? How did that get started? The film is called No Tears in the Writer, which you explain beautifully in the film, that quote, what that's about. So if you could sort of like tell us a little bit about how the film got made and what that quote is actually all about for people who haven't seen the film yet. Okay, so it's a Robert Frost quote, the American poet Robert Frost. And I, I, I use it in songwriting, you know, when I'm teaching. The quote is, no tears in the writer, no tears in the reader, no surprise in the writer, no surprise in the reader. So if the songwriter is not moved by it or surprised by what they've done in the song, then they can't expect other people to be moved or surprised by it. So that's how it got to be called that. I must have mentioned that quote to Chris while we were chatting. He came on to a gig at the Spotted Mallard. It might have been the launch of When I Was on the Moon. Mm -hmm. Pretty sure that's what it was. And so he was kind of, I'm not sure he was aware of me. He was, might have been dragged there by a couple of friends, but he... I assume he enjoyed the show and he got in touch and just started talking. We both weren't sure about the angle. Obviously, he wanted something that some piece of drama that he could hang the film on. And I had a little piece of drama in that I had a, discovered that I had a brain aneurysm and needed an operation on it, or I took the decision to have an operation on it rather than wait for it to burst. And then just before that operation, they discovered a second brain aneurysm. So in the film, I discuss the process of writing when I was on the moon and discuss what I was thinking prior to that operation. And it was a lengthy all-day, 10-hour operation where they just cut open my head and went, you know, cut a piece of bone out just on the side near the ear and went inside my head and snipped 
these aneurysms or, or plugged them up and then retraced their steps and didn't leave anything behind and sewed me back up. And I think Chris was kind of interested in, and maybe this is where you're heading, what the writing process might have been leading up to that. You can hear a recurrent theme here. I thought it best not to think about it. I kind of I had a wonderful conversation with the surgeon about six months before the operation. He and other people around him who I had to deal with at certain points throughout the, the, the process, I had complete confidence in him. He would go into the Royal Melbourne Hospital every Thursday and do a brain operation, brain aneurysm operation. That's his gig. And the nurse around that time said, well, you know, he hasn't lost, he hasn't made a mistake yet kind of thing. So I don't think he's going to make one with you. <laughs> Touch wood. Oh, that's good. I was just writing songs. I had discovered, I had discovered, I had purchased this nylon string guitar and um, was really fascinated by the fact that this E major chord, buzzing string, you know, it just sounded mighty, sounded kind of so powerful. Whereas if I played it on my normal guitar, it would just sound like an E major chord. But this one just sounded like, wow, I'm going to have to say something important or sing about something of some worth with some authority to match that chord. And so that's the way I went through that process. And it was just because I knew it was going to be just me, I think I knew this, just me and the nylon string guitar, that really influenced my writing. I kind of felt as though I had to work harder. Just like the river that will not flow Just like the horn that will not blow I had no idea what to do or where to go And I ended up here What do you know? Now this is interesting. Why did I think I had to work hard? Maybe because there was no one was going to come along and put a harmony on it. No one was going to put a tinkly bit of this or that on it. it was always just going to be me and the lyric and the melody and the chord so maybe that's why the songs are so short because <laughs> <laughs> I could only sustain them for their worth for a couple of minutes before I had to get out Chris just documented that we talked for hours oh my god he photographed me for weeks like yeah he's a very special man I, I would love to catch up with him again but no, it was all his idea and all his baby. And, and then we had a screening of it in Northcote. Oh, it was just a technical nightmare. So that was the end of that story. Uh-oh. <laughs> it was pretty funny. Yeah, I don't think it affected my writing at all. I woke up the next morning after the operation and just felt like the same old bloody idiot that I've always uh, been. A few years ago, I listened, and I hope I'm not speaking out of school here. I, I think it was Roseanne Cash. I heard her on a science podcast, and she was being interviewed along with a surgeon because I think she'd had a similar thing. She had, a, had an aneurysm that had been operated on and the surgeon there who said well i don't understand the creative process and she said well i don't understand the medical process but we both wanted to know how i would be affected post-operation i mean she said well i feel fine i don't think i'm doing anything radically different to what i did before because i wonder whether it'll affect different musicians differently not just necessarily through the physiological process but also maybe there's the psychological processing i've just gone ahead this very dangerous time in my life that's going to affect the way I think, rather than the actual medical process of being operated on. Yeah, that does that does happen. I mean, I I had to get a few things in order, you know, like a will, <laughs> <laughs> those kinds of things. I mean, I bought a flat just prior to the operation because I did get worried about, you know, what if things go wrong and I need to be looked after. Those were the things that were going through my mind. They weren't musical things. It wasn't as if I felt I had to quickly record 10 records and get them out in case it's my last gasp. So, and I don't think I've thought any differently about it. As you can see, I've just tried to put records out a lot only because it's a great feeling to have that empty slate, that white piece of paper. Mm. You know, that's just so exciting. You've got these bunch of songs out the way and off you go. And I love that. I just love the songwriting process. I just love making stuff up with and singing them. I want to come back to the new album, No Weapon But Love. I know that you've said, right, well, you're just sort of carrying on writing the sort of songs that you do. And these songs were written over a lengthier period of time. I'm presuming a lot of them were written before you went in for the operation, but there are 
some songs which, you know, me as a listener rather than you as a songwriter would sort of say, oh, I wonder if that's in relation to your experience with that. I guess like any Ice Cream Hands album, songs of joy, like, you know, No Weapon But Love and Thank You, you know, your beautiful ode to Loving Light and Spencer P. Jones, songs like I Will Wait For You There, which sounds like it's hopeful for the future. And another song which I get the hairs go up on the back of my neck every time I've listened to it, 10,000 Reasons. When the night sky's not leaving I heard it, this is really melancholy. But on the other hand, I, I also see it maybe as a hopeful song. It's like, well, these things have gone wrong in my life, but I have 10,000 reasons to stay alive or to be alive rather than I'm going to make it difficult for you to give me reasons to stay alive. I guess my point is this album covers the whole gamut of personal emotions, joy, maybe some level of resignation to out and out melancholy. Is that you as Charles Jenkins' songwriter, this is what I do, I'm writing a story here, or is that you reflecting some part of yourself? It's a little bit more basic than that. <laughs> okay, okay. What, was, what, was, what was happening was I was flying down to Hobart to teach songwriting. I was kind of fly in, fly out for about five or six years. I go down on a, a Sunday afternoon and I teach all day Monday, all day Tuesday and fly back to Melbourne Tuesday night. And I had this, this accommodation just around the corner from the uni, literally 15 metres around the corner, this old cottage, big thick walls and holes in the floor. <laughs> it was freezing. And anyway, so I would get to the cottage, drop off my bag, walk around the corner to the uni, pick up an acoustic guitar that I had put aside for me in the lockup, bring it back to the cottage and sing really loud because I couldn't do that in Melbourne because I was in a flat in Melbourne and, you know, you can hear people pissing upstairs. So, you, <laughs> you know, that's what happens in flats. So I didn't really want to inflict my songwriting processes upon the entire block sometimes you know writing a song I don't know how other people do it but basically I just play the thing over and over and over and over until you know I kind of get there so here I am in Hobart and I'm not worried about the neighbours so I would just sing these songs really loud so that's how No Weapon But Love came about I could sing everybody got to I could sing really loud same with I Will Wait For You There I could sing that really loud same with the Spencer Thank You song look I think a lot of them were written after the operation I know that oh look I think the one that stems most from the operation is um, General Wear and Tear kind of happy every morning when the sun comes up feeling of absolute elation for about six months after the operation when I was just, every time I woke up, I was just was giddy, just beside myself with joy. Sadly, that kind of diminishes over time. It's really nice to talk about this now because it makes me realize I should giddy up and get a bit more happy by the fact that I am allowed to start, you know, have this chance and good fortune to kind of get out of bed and play the guitar. So I'm kind of happy every morning when the sun comes up. You know, that's how that came yep. from that. Somehow we never got together was again, just me being able to sing loud, let it snow, you know, I can sing it loud. So that was the parameter. The song 10,000 Reasons, that did start off slow and quiet and might've been in the running when I was in my room or when I was on the moon or one of those things, it might've been in the running for that. I know it was written on the nylon string guitar. And it was my friend Joe Mears who happened to be around at the time and I was singing, let me give you one, five, 10,000 kisses tonight. Very Leonard Cohen of me. And he said, nah, <laughs> nah, do 10,000 reasons. I said, really? But then I thought about it and I thought, yeah, let's just do that. And so I kind of tweaked the lyrics to suit that chorus over time. And then Doug made it just so beautifully big and lavish. The whole album, but particularly I'm thinking that song, it sparkles, which is you know, somewhat ironic because it is a song that 
for me, it's like a tear in my beer sort of song. The line in particular, the line we said, the instruments inside you no longer guide you. Yeah. That just sounded like the character in the song was on the edge of their tether. They were despondent beyond all redemption. But then I was not sure at first whether you were singing, give me one, five, 10,000 reasons to be alive, or is I have one, five, 10,000 reasons to be alive. So I wasn't sure whether it was someone who was about to step out into Brighton Road traffic or they somehow found their way to get over their despondency. Oh, yeah. I think it's suggesting someone who's feeling pretty low, obviously. When you do get into some kind of funk, your cognitive strengths seems to disperse to the wind. So, yeah, it was just a hopeful suggestion. Thank you. I like that line. Also, I like the line, there are places in the heart where any songs can start. Mm-hmm. And I like that. It just seemed to kind of suit the mode of transport that I was in, as in the song. I also think that it's the surrounding music and instrumentation that just really help pull on the heartstrings. It would probably sound, a, it, it, I don't know if you believe the guy, if it was just me in a, in a guitar, you know what I mean? Let me give you one, five. This guy doesn't sound like he can give me anything. But when it's got this backing, beautiful lavishness attached to it, he sounds like he's an authority on the subject. It sounds like the moment the song is over, he'll take you aside and hand you the list of 10,000 reasons. It's also something to do, I think, with... and. <laughs> Not being a great guitarist or chord theorist of any strength, I can't say for sure. But there's something about that sequence of chords that I call, it's the ice cream hand chords sequence. I had to go to my son. It might have been the last song on the album. I said, oh, tell me what these two chords are. Are they major sevenths or, or, or what are they? He said, no, 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 that's D major over G. And this, the other one's E major nine flat seven. sequences are often we're not talking flashy jazz chords or something like that but there's something that's very much you as a composer that sounds ice cream hands-ish that brings out the melancholy or the joy as much as the lyrics it's the full package is there something in your mind that sounds like an ice cream hands chord or chord sequence that's that's interesting maybe i've always been into chord progressions i've always Mm. Probably, unfortunately, it just seems to be most of my songs start that way. And I just say unfortunately because it requires then a lot of work to try and figure out, oh, what am I going to sing about on top of this? What's embedded in this chord sequence? You know, what what are the answers within the song so I can, just so I can match the lyric with the chord and with the melody. I think Doug's chords are a little bit, I think he's able to extract more melody from his chord sequences. You know, if you want to, I suppose, talk about the, this is really basic and you'll probably get lots of complaints from your listeners about this theory, but if we can just, you know, look at the McCartney style of songwriting, again, a huge generalization is coming up where he can really bounce a melody around a chord sequence. Whereas with Lennon, he can, a lot of the time, he's not doing too much of a melody, but the chords are changing a lot underneath. So that's where the the tension and the release and the harmony come from that interaction. I think Doug's much better at that McCartney-esque extracting a beautiful melody from a chord sequence where I think naturally, because I'm just perhaps not the greatest melodicist, I think the chords are doing a lot of the work to help get the song across, you know, and maybe that's part of the determining factor. You know, I do love songs with one chord and two chords and three chords, but Mm. when they get sent to the band, (laughs) they're not the ones that get chosen kind of Mm. thing. Whereas sometimes I just like that because it's a good way into a song. It's just, there's got much rightful basis for the song to start than any other avenue you might pursue to initiate a song. Mm. Another song that is, a highlight for me on the album is sort of like it serves as a good midway point on the record is February Falls. Everybody falls. 
one of the most beautiful songs I've heard in ages. It sounds to me like a mix between early Fleet Foxes and Smile-era Beach Boys. Did that arrangement come into your head or was it just something that Doug shaped out for you in terms of how many arrangements were you in fact listening to much of the Fleet Foxes? Have I sort of got that right? Is that an influence on that song? No, it wasn't. I'm embarrassed to admit I don't really know much of their stuff. On Pro Tools, I've just got a folder that says new songs and I'll, if, if I get a song idea off, you know, whatever, rather than put every idea on my phone, I'll go and record it. And I was, so I was just kind of listening to these ideas one day. And I thought, oh, what's that? What's this? You know, I saw this file there. It was me doing this version of Beverly Falls. And I can tell that I'm just you know, making, I mean, there's only five words in the whole song anyway, but I'm kind of making them all up on the spot. I couldn't remember doing it. I thought, wow, this is not bad. And I sent it to Doug. And so, yes, it was Doug again, like he just made it widescreen. He added all the parts and put the Carol type Brian Wilson bass part in it. Well, Dave Mill played piano on it. And so yeah, it was his idea to soup it up like that. And I, again, the modus operando I was partly to do with, this would be a good song to break up the record. Mm. You know, so if we have 12 songs in a row that chug along at whatever beats per minute, but if you have a couple of things that help break up those songs, there was a few mid-paced kind of ballads, not ballads, I don't know, but you know, somehow we never got together and I will work for you there. There's another one, 10,000 Reasons, like the kind of same ballpark tempo-wise. I realised I pushed for the song to go on there and my argument was that it's going to help the other song sound better. Why I made the reference to the Fleet Foxes, I guess, is that even though a large part of the Ice Cream Hands sound are your harmonies, yet this sounded completely different to anything I'd heard from you guys before and that there was no harmonies behind a lead vocal or harmonies augmenting something that's going to come up as a lead vocal afterwards. It was all harmonies the whole way through fairly low in the mix it sort of sounded like a uh, i don't know maybe like a church chorale or something like that yeah i I wanted that i partly selfish reasons i thought my vocal take wasn't the best and i kept (laughs) on saying no no there's not this this is not a lead vocal it's part of the four but so i was really keen for that if i had to put in a in a freddie mercury type performance But it was just me struggling to hit some of those notes at that particular hour of the day that I was at Doug's doing it. Out of incidents like that, you get some great art. So I'm glad your voice failed you for that occasion. Me too. <laughs> we mentioned before about your album, The Last Polaroid, which the same thought had occurred to me, wow, this sounds like Zhivago's does ice cream hands, or at least for part of the album. One song that I particularly want to mention, No Electronic Devices. Electronic devices have yet to enthrall Like pencil on paper or boot against bone All the clothes in our summer's day With your mother's dinner call No electronic devices, none at all Summer day sort of romanticizes the notion, I guess, of our generation recalling the simplicity of putting pen to paper or playing a cassette rather than doing everything on an electronic device like we're currently recording this podcast on. And it also recalls maybe, I guess, the whole notion of the title of the album, The Last Polaroid, an outmoded form of technology. There's that bit in your film. He goes to great emphasis to show you flipping the pages of a notebook. You're writing lots of notes with pen and paper, which maybe, I don't know whether a lot of 20, 30-something-year-old songwriters are even doing nowadays. Are you still sort of romantically in love with those old-fashioned ways of doing things? I just had the thought that, yeah, we can spend a little bit too much time, you know, myself included. You know, you've got to make sure you're singing to the back row. The gestures have to be large. So I kind of, with each song, you want to really make the point. So you might exclude some thoughts that, you know, r- rather than the bridge that says, well, you know, personally, darling, I, I off, I'm often on my iPhone or something like that. That's not going to help your argument, so you don't put that in. Then look, it's interesting. That's a really Ice Cream Hand song. <laughs> That's just such a pop song. <laughs> Believe it or not, I was trying to rip off Van Morrison at that. I, I remember having that chord sequence and, and then going to that really summer day, summer day. I was just trying to sing out, like, but failing, but I was trying to sing out like Van Morrison. 
But yeah, it wasn't like a great notion or anything. I mean, I firmly believe it. There's enough evidence around to kind of point towards the damaging effects that electronic devices can have upon us and our psyche and, and our addiction to them. It's obvious that you don't you don't have to be of any generation to kind of realise that there's a, a hand to hold. It's a lot better than a device to have in your hand kind of thing. So that's where it came from. Just as a little side thing, I, I re-watched this morning before we came online. I re-watched Chris Franklin's film. So it just reminded me, I've made a note here, that you were saying something about, and possibly you're the only songwriter who I would have ever heard say that Come On Aussie was an early... touchstone for you thinking wow songwriting that's great your love of cricket so it's it's great to know that paul kelly is not the only one who connects music and cricket have you ever written about your love of cricket or the day you shook dennis lily's hand or something i could I remember meeting Lily and Tomo once and shook their hands. There's actually the song on the last Polaroid. Winter Ball originally started out as just this sequence that my son Elliot had on the piano and the very first demo of that with me just making up words on the spot, which I just always love doing. One of the verses was she was into cricket, so I told her I captained the team. (laughs) I knew there was some kind of cricket thing there. And then the other cricket thing that I used, and this is for the older members of the audience like ourselves, Morris, is when I'm trying to put together the song order on a record, the sequence. Mm. Marcus did this one pretty much, but when I'm on oh, No Weapon But Love, but when I'm trying to do it on these Chicago records or whatever solo records, my template is the West Indian batting lineup of 1975-76. So I think which song is my Gordon Greenwich? Which song <laughs> is my Roy Frederick? Which song is my Vivian Richards? Which song is my Lawrence Rowe, which is Clive Lloyd? And on it goes, you know, which song is my Malcolm Marshall kind of thing? <laughs> so that's how I kind of sequence it. And I take great delight and probably spend too much time. It's amazing that you can define a song with anyone else's characteristics, be it sporting prowess. How would you characterise a song as Clyde Lloyd? How would you define that? Well, the Gordon Greenwich one was just that, what's the one that you'd think can just belt people out of the park? Okay. And then, you know, the, the Lawrence Rowe one is what's the song that can just caress the audience? And the Clive Lloyd one is what's the song that is smart, a brilliant fieldsman, fantastic bowler, and just a giant presence, incredible batsman, and which song wears glasses as well? So <laughs> it's, it's those kinds of things which I know it just may just seem absurd, and, but it helps me figure it out. You know, I hope that kind of helped explain. Definitely. Which is the Viv Richards, like, which is the, just the master craftsman here? And I never have a song, of course, that's as good as any of those people. <laughs> but it's fun for me to do. And that's the reason I still do it, because this whole caper is fun. So when you're lecturing at the University of Tasmania, do you ever... Mention that one, no. Well, not necessarily about the uh, West Indies cricket team of the 1970s, but do you ever mention them, pick a, a favourite set of films by, you know, your favourite director and sequence your songs, like, you know, which one is the super violent sounding one? Which one is the one that questions what life is all about? Do you say, right, go over the oeuvre of Martin Scorsese films and determine the order of your series of songs that way? Is that something that you would teach in that line? That's a good question. I always do say, and this is something that I do as well, when I'm trying to figure out where the song is going, and I love not knowing where the song is going. I think that's part of the thing I've learned over the years is not knowing is really exciting rather than being a cause for any kind of anxiety. I always try and imagine, okay, at this point in the song, we've handed it to Marty Scorsese and he's got a $30 million budget and how does it look? Where's the camera? What's the backdrop? Who's doing the talking? You know, I always like to see the songs. It helps me kind of move them along. The image, I mean, this is one thing I learned that, you know, by putting an image into your song, it's very important because the way that it works is um, people see their own version of your events. So the quote here, Morris, forgive me, is the visual cortex desires to be activated. So if you're able to provide an image, then the listener will provide their own version of it. And therefore, they become a part of your song or your song becomes more a part of them. They enjoy it more because there's one more sense 
involved, but you know, beyond the seductive powers of rhythm and melody, etc., there's this image. So I always encourage songwriters to put in an image. Mm. So you don't want to have too many and overwhelm the listening, but you need a few every now and then to kind of help propel the song along. like it's a lot of hard work to strip things back you still have to remember that you've got to put in that image you have to find a one line in the song that grabs the listener you present your image but you're going to let them see it as they want it doesn't feel like work and, and i mean every line has to be really good jimmy webb calls songwriters the swiss watchmakers of the arts we have this very small room in which to work it's a very small amount of space in which to work and basically most songs you know you want you get three verses a chorus and a bridge so it's about 20 lines you know 20 25 lines in a song so it's not much the only reason you i do the work is because i love the work i love the challenge and i love you know i love doing it i i don't kind of sway at it i just kind of chip away at it but the other thing i remind myself is that i don't want the listener to do the work it's not their job. It's the entertainment industry. They've paid their money. Here's the song. I don't want you to sit there and scratch your head and try and figure out, did the butler do it or something? I, you know, I want to kind of present it. So it does make some kind of sense and it moves them in a particular way. And, and of course, that depends if the music backdrop is perfect for it. You know, if I'm playing a bunch of weird chords with weird instruments, then, yeah, I think I'm given the right to sing about the cosmos or something. <laughs> um, but if I'm doing it straight ahead and it's pumping along with a bit of vroom, vroom, a bit of vim to it, then yeah, I should be singing about the open road or if it's a big bright thing, I should be singing about no electronic devices, you know. So it always has to be in conjunction with, with the melody and the, and the rhythm. So you're not likely to do your King Crimson record anytime soon? As much as I'd love to, <laughs> no. I mean, it'd be fun. I mean, you know, that, that's the kind of, a comment like that is just enough to get me started. Okay, <laughs> let's go. We all know the answer to everything, why everything has been shit this year is 2020. Once again, I want to say thank you to you and Marcus and Doug and Smiley for bringing some light. And anyone says 2020 was completely horrible, I'll point to this album and say, no, it was not completely horrible because we got this. If restrictions were dropped tomorrow or, you know, realistically within three months or something like that, do you go play stages around the country or around the East Coast yeah. with the album? Yeah, we go on the road and lose money. <laughs> I think I heard you say, right, you'll make a bit in Melbourne, you'll break even in Sydney, and then you go up to Brisbane just so you can blow it all. Well, we don't go there on purpose to blow it all at the casino. <laughs> no, you, you blow we, we lose. We lose it because people, I love Brisbane to death, but you get people saying, come to Brisbane, come to Brisbane, come to, you go to Brisbane and no one. Do people turn up in Adelaide? Uh, we sp sporadically go. Yeah, the last one was pretty good. It kind of ebbs and flows. Are you ever cited there as Adelaide's favourite son or something? Oh, shit, no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who I am. You know, which is a pity because I know Adelaide very well. They should know me. They should. <laughs> I've always kind of thought that there's something in the water in Adelaide because, you know, people like yourself and Paul Kelly and Mick Peeling and Stars and I think Chisel formed there and the Easy Beats. But there's so many great bands that come out of Adelaide. Well, everyone leaves because of the water. There, there is something in the water. And the water for the years was just notoriously terrible to drink. <laughs> they got the balance of hard and soft chemicals or whatever hard and soft water incorrect i remember i took my the family when we you know back to adelaide went to visit the grandparents and stuff and my wife at the time she would go to the shop and buy water this was well before people would buy bottled water you know they, they didn't even sell bottles they just sold they gave you a buck no i don't know what they did this is more <laughs> 
things that you would fill with the radiator up if you kind of ran out of water somewhere across the Nullarbor. So yeah, people leave Adelaide because of the water. And we can say that about any town, not the water thing, but you know, any town offers up a bunch of wonderful women and men. There's great scenes everywhere. We know, you know, Perth has had its great scene and I'm going to be biased about how wonderful Melbourne is, but I was reading the Jim Keys biography years ago and I just thought, holy shit. It, it just seems to me that there's... I don't know, maybe it was disproportionate, but I just thought it was such a great scene. Okay, because there's multiple scenes. It's been over the whole history of pop music as we know it for the last 50, 60 years. I mean, a lot of them were the English, British Isle migrants that were 10-pound poems kind of thing that came out here and they would go and live out in the satellite cities, Elizabeth mainly, you forget, but these guys were hungry, you know, and they knew hunger. You know, I had a wonderful weekend with Doc Neeson once, who was from Adelaide. Mm. And he told me this story about when the Angels first started. You know, they would drive from Adelaide to Sydney, which the Mad Turks used to do a lot, like it's a big haul. But they had a station wagon and the four of them, and they had two people in the front seat, driver, passenger, and then the back seat was folded down and that's where the amps were. And the amps, you know, back then were the size of a house, or just enormous amplifiers. And the other two members of the band would sleep on top of these giant amps, giant boxes, speaker mm. boxes, that they would be on top so their noses would be touching the roof, the ceiling of the car. <laughs> they would lie there for five hours and then it was time to swap. These kids, they were, they were hungry. It was a little bit easier for me and it, it, and it probably showed, you know, by the time I came up, my mum won't like me saying this, but you could get the doll and do not much. You know, you could live on the doll and we did. And then we came to Melbourne and I had to get a job. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's where I might have first met you face to face was the gaslight, the l- lamented gaslight. Yeah, no, that was fun. Mm. Not that it paid well, but that was fun. It was fun. And I learned a lot about songwriting and music in general from that store and then from basement discs. I'd mm. learned a hell of a lot. So it was a wonderful part of the education and just a wonderful time. So many wonderful people like yourself. Well, thank you. So, okay, so basically you've gone and said that when COVID is down in whatever form you can do it, the hands will go out and do some gigs and you've already gone and implied, which I'm very excited about, that you have already started writing even more material. Yeah, I'm super, super keen. As I said, it's just such enjoyable process to be a part of a band again, to be in the gang. It just makes it really easy. Did the Javagos just say, right, we'll roll up, we'll do whatever it is that you say? Oh, no, 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 no. I've never given anyone any kind of musical instruction ever. I don't think that's my job. I don't tell them what the chords are. They can work out the chords. I just send them the demo and see at the rehearsal room. I don't do that. I think it's way more important and much more fun for them to bring themselves to the party, you know, bring their own chops, bring their own thing. So, no, no, the Chivagos were wonderful at bringing their own ideas to it. But it did get very hard to organise because Davey's such a busy guy and Maddie Mm. Bale's busy and everyone's busy and, and... and I thought, well, I'll just do these quiet little nylon string records, which, Morris, I've done two with just me and a guitar, and I've got enough for a third one. I just don't know whether I can flit another kind of nylon string guitar record. Do it. Upon. Thanks. Okay. Well. <laughs> I have spoken. You will do. Great. That's uh, all Once again, huge thanks to you for your time. This has just been really, really great. Look forward to seeing you again. So the last time I got to see you, I think, was last year you did the show at the Caravan. I know I saw you twice as part, I think, of uh, the Sweeter Than the Radio tour. I can't remember where the first one was. Maybe that was back at the Northcote Social Club. I don't know, but I know certainly the last time I saw it was at the Caravan Club, which sadly COVID has taken that away from us. That's no longer going to be a venue. Are you finding like on, on the north side of town, are there venues that have said, right, we just won't be able to return? Uh, I think there's a few. There's a few hanging on. I, I know that the moment that we can start again, I'll go straight back to Monday nights at the retreat. You know, I've been doing that for five years or so. So we're in communication. So as soon as possible, that will happen. I assume it's been a dreadful time for a lot of those venue owners. On that note. <laughs> On that note. Oh, God. Okay, so I'll end this by letting the listeners know out there that if they want to pick up a copy of No Weapon But Love, it is available on CD and on record. That's my preferred name for that particular type of platter. Not on cassette, 
I believe that's going to be coming back. No, not on cassette. Although I would love, I've got a, I've got a cassette player in the car. I love cassettes. I think they sound amazing. The kids of today don't know the difficulty, the struggles that we had to do to do operations on our cassettes whenever they went bung. Uh, the struggle was real. My eldest son Henry does. He put out a, a solo record of his on cassette only. <laughs> He's a bit like Daniel Johnson. He only ever released things on cassette. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's as far as I'd like to take them. Okay. Sure, sure. <laughs> okay. So people out there, yeah, go to Bandcamp. That's how the CD and the record is available. Charles, I'm sure, will be happy to send out a copy of said... Doug, uh, Doug does it. Oh, Doug. Okay, well, yep. Doug Lee Robertson, bass player, vocal harmonist, songwriter, uh, will be happy to send out a copy. On that note... Thanks so much, Charles, for your time. Really super appreciate it. And I look forward to seeing you either at the Retreat Hotel when uh, when you're allowed to do that and certainly on an Ice Cream Hands show wherever there's a venue that we can see you at. All the best. Thank you. Thanks, Morris. Thanks for your time. Really enjoyed the chat. My huge thanks to Mr. Charles Jenkins of the Ice Cream Hands for coming onto the program and talking about the Ice Cream Hands and No Weapon But Love and cricket and all sorts of other wonderful, interesting things. You don't just get what the title says on this program. We go to many different directions. That's what I like to do on this show. I like to ramble and I like my guests to ramble. If you wish to get hold of a copy of that album, then you can look them up on Bandcamp. Ice Cream Hands are on Bandcamp. I'll include a link in the show notes and you can pick up a copy of the record or the CD. So what's happening next month? Love It Album 140. That'll be November 2020. I'll be inviting onto the show the ex-engineer of one of my favorite podcasts, Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast, Mr. Frank Verderosa. If you're a long-time listener of the show, then you'll know very well who Frank is and he was almost sort of like a co-presenter not just the engineer he always had a lot of really wonderfully funny things to say on that program so we were having a bit of a conversation in Facebook private messaging I was trying to sort of work out what his musical interests were and an album that we had in common that we both really loved was from 1980 the album Duke by Genesis Now, this album sort of stands a little bit problematic in some people's canon in their memory of Genesis because this album was sort of like the very last remnants of them being a prog band with some very strong doses of pop music. It's pre-Phil Collins taking over the 80s with that fucking gated reverb. So the album may be overlooked by some because it's not Phil enough for some. It's not enough like the early Genesis, like Peter Gabriel era Genesis or Steve Hackett era Genesis. And it's not enough like later Genesis when they became purely a pop band. This is just right on the cusp, right in the middle. And for that reason, I think it's probably my favorite Genesis album. I'm saying that right here and now. A lot of people might say, well, we like The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. We like Foxtrot. Good luck to you. They're great albums, but this is my favorite. I'll be looking forward to see whether this is Frank's favorite. We should have a wonderful discussion about that in November. So please remember to tune in. You can find us on all the usual sorts of places. Joanne's already announced that at the beginning of the show. Or go looking for us at pantheonpodcast.com and check out any of the other wonderful podcasts in the Pantheon Podcast Network. Some really terrific shows there for you to listen to. Okay, look after yourselves. Be nice to each other. The next few weeks are going to be very, very challenging for a whole bunch of reasons. So please be nice. Please don't go starting a fight on the internet. It's really not worth it. And if you're walking out in the street, please wear a mask. Keep your distance from other people. You don't have to elbow them because I find that a little bit silly. But if you want to, of course, go right ahead. But just be nice to each other. That's a big thing. Listen to some great music. Watch some great films. Read some wonderful books. And listen to a whole lot of amazing podcasts. Don't care what the ABC says. All the best. Cheers. Cheers.